What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I am Jordan, joined with Jared, and we have a special guest tonight who I'll introduce in just a second. But tonight, we are going to be talking about biblical scholarship. A few weeks ago, well, I guess a few months ago now, uh, we started our review series of David Fitzgerald's book on Jesus mythicism. And one of the earliest chapters was talking about how uh, thoroughly... I don't know if corrupt is the right word, but corrupted biblical scholarship is with uh, insidious Christian theology and how difficult it is for any actual scholarship to be done. Uh, they claimed, among other things, that all or at least the vast majority of biblical scholars are bound by statements of faith. Biblical scholars are like hopelessly biased and basically non-biblical non-Christian biblical scholars can't like step out of line for fear of being run out of town on rails and tarred and feather and whatnot. So we thought that uh, in order to examine these claims, we might get a biblical scholar on to tell us what his experience is like. And so we invited Dr. Kip, who is kind enough to join us tonight. How's it going, Kip? Hey, it's good. How are you guys? I'm great. So uh, just in case, I suspect most of the people in the audience are fully aware of who you are. But just in case, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, let everyone know where they can find you? Excellent. Sure. So, um, first of all, I gotta say, um, I've been a big fan of this show for, for a number of months now. I think I only discovered you guys maybe six or eight months ago, but, uh, but I'm very, very happy and excited to, to finally be here every day. I, I would get up in the morning and I'd open my email or, my Twitter and and look for an invitation to come on to uh, come on to your show, but there was nothing until until one bright morning it was there and here I am. Yes, it's see it's it's okay. funny because on my side I'm thoroughly riddled with imposter syndrome, and so this whole time I'm like, man, we should really get Kip on, but why would he want to talk to a bunch of losers like us? You know, so <laughs> but well, yeah. Speaking Bird. of losers, uh, we just hit over a thousand losers who are turning into the channel. Yes. So yeah, uh, thanks. Um, uh, big milestone this week. Before, now we can start rolling in that sweet YouTube dough. I noticed our expected payment so far is eighteen cents. So moving you guys on are up. Ready to quit your day jobs? <laughs> You've already submitted your letters of resignation, and uh, yeah. yeah, it's so we will be doing. Go. We will be doing like a celebratory stream or something in a couple weeks. Honestly, it happened a lot faster than we expected. I think once we announced that Kip was going to come on, our skyrocketed. So we will do something uh, in the near future. Um, but today's topic oh. is biblical scholarship. So yes. uh, why so, should anyone listen to you about biblical scholarship, Doctor Davis? I didn't. I didn't get around to my introduction, so this this will be part of it. Um, <laughs> I. I People should listen to me, or maybe I, I would encourage people to to at least consider what I have to say, because I'm a biblical scholar, and I've been a biblical scholar for a while. Um, you know, I've been uh, I, I I started my PhD in two thousand five, I think, and then I you know I finished it in uh, in two thousand nine. I think those those dates are right, but it, it was a long time ago. So I have spent most of my professional life within critical biblical scholarship. Um, if people don't know, 
Um, I'm a specialist in Hebrew Bible, early Judaism and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, I have uh, I have taught at uh, universities in uh, Canada and Norway on uh, these topics. Um, I was involved in the publication of Dead Sea Scrolls fragments from private collections in both Norway and in the United States. And I was part of the international team that uh, that kind of broke the uh, broke the lid broke the seal on uh, on this big story about uh, Dead Sea Scrolls forgeries in the private collections that I was hired to publish. <laughs> so uh, you can imagine they were thrilled. Uh, the owners, they, they, yeah, they, they said, come on back anytime, kid. Making friends. Uh, Take a look at all these other artifacts I have. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I, I have, uh, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's just my name, Kip Davis. And um, I, I have a course uh, over at MVP Courses titled uh, Real Israelite Religions, Facts on the Ground and Propaganda in the Bible. It's uh, 18 lectures. It's about uh, 13 hours of, uh, of uh, this. Uh, it's, it's actually an introductory course that I taught in an evangelical Christian university, uh, no less, that I have since adapted um, for a, a broader audience and it's, uh, covering topics of, uh, what we know about the people behind the text of the old Testament, the religious practices, some of their ideas and the history of development and why the texts present them the way they do. So, and so if, if somebody wanted to get a good insight on what it's like to be taught inside the bowels of the Christian world, they could take your course. <laughs> yeah, get there first so, step in indoctrination. Um, and I gotta I gotta tell you, so when I taught this course, one of the things that that I you know I had to do, you know, teaching it in a Christian university was after I finished a lecture, I usually I usually would would set aside five minutes um at the end of my lecture because I I was invariably prepared uh for the uh the the ongoing crises of faith that um that these poor kids would would uh suffer like clockwork um and you get uh it you know some of this you have you have kids uh in this setting who just you know are committed to what they think and what they know and they're just gonna you know give you the right answers on the test and then be done with your course and move on uh but you also have uh kids who who i think and and this is uh my experience with the bible itself is when you actually start to look at it critically and when you pull back the layers and when you think carefully about what the text is saying and why it's saying what it is, uh, it gets really exciting. I think it gets very interesting. Um, and it, it, it's, it expands your world. It expands your mind. So the Bible is cool. I agree. I think it's an yeah. interesting book, uh, written in history, but speaking of history, uh, let's dive into what biblical scholarship is. So, uh, what is biblical scholarship? And if someone calls themselves a biblical scholar, what does that mean? So um, I got the I got the benefit of the talking points in advance 
Uh, so I've been thinking through a lot but of this. Don't tell them that. This is all off the top of your head. Yeah. Uh, and I wondered about the best way to, to go about uh, talking about this. And I think even just giving people a perspective of, you know, how we got here, where we are now, um, can be a helpful way uh, to go through it. So I've got just a, like a crash course on the history of biblical scholarship that I hope I can get through here in, in, in like five minutes or maybe 10. Um, but uh, so critical biblical scholarship um, is according to the Society of Biblical Literature. And I'll be talking quite a bit about the Society of Biblical Literature because this is the largest uh, professional society or organization dedicated to um, the academic study of the Bible. According to the SBL mission statement, they say that uh, they're devoted, uh, their, their, their mission is uh that sorry they're devoted to the critical investigation of the bible from a variety of academic disciplines and that is basically just very simply what biblical scholarship is this is uh the academic study of any aspect of a text that is contained within the bible or intersects with the bible uh, in terms of its its interpretation, in terms of its usage by various communities for whom the, the, the Bible is a sacred text. And as a result, and I'll get into this a little bit, um, as a result, there's it's a multidisciplinary field. Um, and it's also a big tent. And what I mean by when I by what I mean by that is that uh, because so many who are interested in the Bible from the outset are religious. They are Christians, they are Catholics, they are Orthodox and Reformed uh, rabbinic Jews. Because of that, there is a variety of competing ideas and opinions about how to handle these texts. And one of the things that the SBL strains to do and i i have to point out here the sbl is not perfect it's got lots of its own issues and problems our field continues to have its own issues and problems but what the sbl strenuously attempts to do is to democratize the field in such a way as to make it comfortable for anybody to be able to uh study and investigate the bible so just to give you like like a snapshot of the history here, um, I think for it's a little bit different for for most scholars, but I would say that the beginning of critical biblical studies probably happened in the um, in the 17th century. Uh, Baruch Spinoza um, was his Jewish name. He's he's more uh, commonly recognized by by his, uh, his, his uh, non-Jewish name, Benedict Spinoza, um, was a, um, an intellectual in the 17th century. And he wrote, a, um, he wrote a pamphlet called Tractatus Theologica uh, 
Pon Politicus, in which he um, forwarded his ideas for how uh, people should be reading and studying the Bible. This happened right around uh, the time of the Protestant Reformation. So, and what, what the Protestant Reformation did was basically it unshackled the Bible from ecclesiastical power in the Catholic Church. And this was one of the one of the the big mandates of you know the the first protestant movements was that everybody should have the opportunity to read the bible and intellectuals and academics also came to understand that everybody should have the opportunity to study and to learn about the bible so baruch spinoza was one of these figures and he came up with uh five uh, five, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, five points in, uh, how to, how we should be studying the Bible. Uh, point number one, he said, scripture is to be understood by scripture alone. The time honored traditions about what the Bible means. And here Spinoza had in mind rabbinic midrash, as well as Christian typological and allegorical interpretations, which preceded this period often lead to absurdities, he says. Therefore, only scripture's own words are to be considered. All scripture, all knowledge of scripture must be sought from scripture alone. Um, so this secondly, is like the sola scriptura idea? It's sim not, in, not exactly, because he's not, he's not looking at it as a rule of faith. He's basically saying the best way to understand what the Bible has to say is pay close attention to what the Bible has to say. Gotcha. gotcha. So, um, and it, at this period, in this period of time, right? Uh, this is after centuries of um, uh, Catholic uh, scholars and Jewish rabbis coming to the text and piling upon it all these allegorical meanings, right? So he's like, no, let's get back to what the text says. Let's look at it closely in order to best determine what it is. So the second point, he said, in order to understand scripture, we must understand all the peculiarities of its language and its world of ideas and not to impose on it our own later conceptions. There is no reason to assume that what scripture says conforms to our own values or our current knowledge or even to logical thought. We should thus take every precaution against the undue influence, not only of our own prejudices, but of our faulty, uh, of our faculty of reason. So a big thing for Spinoza was that in order to know anything at all about the text, you first of all have to understand what the text is saying in its own languages, in Hebrew and Greek, and not, you know, the Latin translation, or at this point, the, or the English translation, English or the French <laughs> or the German translations, right? So he set a very high uh, standard on language. Um, Third, we should thus begin to assume that scripture means what scripture says, even when it disagrees with our own conceptions. Uh, sorry. For example, when Moses, he and uh, Spinoza believed that Moses probably wrote the Pentateuch. Um, he, so he says, when Moses is said to have described God as a fire or as a jealous God, we have to take such things literally unless they can be shown to contradict some other saying of Moses, in which case they may be interpreted metaphorically. So he still has in mind here this view that um, 
because he thinks it's all been written by Moses, it's got to be consistent in some way or shape or form, right? So you have to you have to work through how to how to how to get these things uh, to to coalesce. Uh, fourth, someone who wishes to inquire inquire into scriptures meaning must likewise investigate how the books themselves were put together and the process of their transmission. The life of the reputed author must be studied, his personality traits as well as his historical context, in order to understand how he intended what he said to be understood. Whether, for example, he intended something as an actual law or merely as a moral instruction, or whether something was being put forward as eternally valid or merely as a short-term measure. Things of only temporary significance are directed only for the benefit of the few. And finally, in considering the words of prophets, one must recognize that they frequently contradict one another. Even on such essentials as what God is and what he says, he sees and provides for all things. So Spinoza wrote, we have clearly shown that the prophets themselves were not in agreement. One must therefore concentrate on those few items on which the prophets do agree. So, but that's, that's kind of the starting point was just taking this text seriously in its own terms, reading it in its original languages, thinking carefully about the history and the background of the text and Dare we even come to recognize on certain points, it might disagree, it might even be wrong. So this is kind of the starting point. Um, would, you, would you say that, yeah, I mean, the, the rabbis have been doing this for a while, you know, in the Talmud and Mishnah, but that was more for like theological reasons, right? Where this is something completely different and new. Totally different, totally new. Because what the rabbis were doing in the Talmud was mining the text for uh, in order to ascertain meaning about what's going on now, today, right? So when you actually read through the tractates of the Talmud, you'll notice this. This is pretty consistent. Um, and this is this is a, a, a long-standing, also a very ancient form of interpretation where you you look at a significant word and and that can mean you know something completely contrary to what it appears to mean within the text spinoza is actually like totally turning the tables on that and saying that's garbage we need to understand what the text is saying in its own right in its own place so and and this was it's hard to imagine but this was revolutionary at the time it yeah it that seems standing from where we are now very obvious that you should obvious you know <laughs> yeah. listen you should take into account the context and like the intent of the author it seems like you know but a lot so, of things seem obvious in hindsight certainly so but this is kind of where it started and then through the 19th century the uh the the so-called uh uh scientific um revolution the enlightenment uh there came with this just an obsession among uh, European intellectuals with history generally. In fact, the, the, um, the discipline of modern history was born in and around this same period. And of course, with it uh, was born historical investigations of the biblical text. 
Uh, these started with um, uh, a name that some people may not be familiar with is uh, DeWitt. Uh, he was a PhD student, I believe, at Tübingen, which was a, a, a very uh, popular center for um, um, theology in Germany. Uh, he started to see that uh, the book of Deuteronomy is actually quite different from the other four books of Moses and actually looks like it belongs more in the 7th century at the time of Josiah. And he, he was the one who first proposed this idea that maybe this book was actually written by the priests in the temple uh, at the time of Josiah and then just attributed falsely to Moses. Uh, a name you're probably more familiar with is Julius Wellhausen, who around the same time, a similar time, was uh, was developing ideas about sources in the Pentateuch, including uh, the book of Deuteronomy. He identified uh, sources uh, we now call J, or the Yahweh source, E, the Aloha source, and P, the priestly source, as um, uh, originally different forms of many of the same stories and many of the same textual traditions which were compiled together later by a single author. So all this was happening around the same time and it was all kind of happening in Germany and as a result it came to be known as the German science. Uh, so around this same time uh, in 1880 the great Charles Augustus Briggs, who is uh, watching dutifully over my shoulder. There you uh, go. David of Oakland in the chat evening. was wondering who that handsome fellow was yes. behind you. <laughs> this is Charles Augustus Briggs and a colleague, Philip Schaff. Charles Briggs was uh, a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Uh, in 1880, he and his friend, um, uh, Philip Schaff, decided that they wanted, and this was something that was that was becoming all the rage in the 19th century, was for academics, for university professors and for scholars to set up their own learned societies, societies of history, societies of language. And these two uh, gentlemen decided we need a society of biblical studies. So uh, they got together and with, with uh, I believe it was, was six other um, college professors, professors at, at seminaries um, to found the Society of Biblical Literature and Exegesis in, uh, in 1880. Significantly, this was three years before uh, Wellhausen published his groundbreaking book, which completely altered the, the face of biblical studies. Uh, his Prologomena zur Geschichte Israels, or the Prologomena to the History of Israel. Uh, so all this was happening around the same time. And Briggs had actually spent time in Germany uh, studying and was very, very taken with the German science. So in the earliest years, the only criterion for membership at the Society of Biblical Literature and Exegesis was defined beyond common interest in biblical studies was the quality of the candidate's exegetical writings, 
though this was never rigidly enforced and it was never explained what that meant either. <laughs> so um, an, an initiation fee of $5 entitled the new member to all the rights and privileges and annual dues of $3 kept one in good standing and ensured receipt of any publications that were produced. And right shortly after the founding of the, of the SBL, uh, they produced the first issue of the um, most widely read popular periodical in biblical literature today, the Journal of Biblical Literature. So the first constitution was uh, uh, made in 1884, and the uh, constitution said that the object of the society shall be to stimulate the critical study of the scriptures by presenting, discussing, and publishing original papers on biblical topics. In 1886, the first Jewish members were added, and this included Marcus Jastrow, who uh, edited and put together um, the most important uh, dictionary of Hebrew for rabbinic literature. In uh, 1894, and for several subsequent years, the Society of Biblical Literature joined other societies in attempting to found a Congress of American philologists. And this included the American Oriental Society, the American Philological Association, Modern Language Association, the American Dialect Society, the Spelling Reform Association. I have no idea what that is. But obviously but they were sounds... out like proper grammar, you know, they're the people who it correct your spelling fun. on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> these, these were the original grammar Nazis. So, um, and importantly, the Archaeological Institute of America. Um, so I, I think this is, this is cr very important to stress that the Society of Biblical Literature, biblical studies as a discipline is a discipline of the humanities. It is an investigation of literature. Um, I prefer to think of it as a, uh, a discipline of philology, and, which may be a, a, a new word to some people. Um, and I don't know if, if I've seen a, a great definition of exactly what it is, but it's basically the in-depth critical study of languages and literatures. And that's pretty much what the biblical, what biblical studies is, is the in-depth study of languages and literatures that happen to be considered in one way or another connected to a Bible. So, yeah. So, mm -hmm. go ahead. Just a recap real quick. Um, I think it's important to highlight, too, from the stories that you told of how it was formed, that from the very start this was a critical analysis of the Bible and yeah. topics surrounding the Bible. And so much so that it, it probably caused waves in the pool of the religion. You're, you're reading ahead, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah. So and I think um, the founding of the society of biblical literature actually um was really fueled by some of the debates that were taking place when this critical study of the Bible started to intersect with the church. And this brings us now to the story of Charles Augustus Briggs. So 
In uh, May 1893, you'll recall the SBL was founded in 1880. They've been having congresses for um, 15 years at this point in time. But in 1883, uh, Charles Briggs uh, actually was called before the uh, an ecumenical council of the Presbyterian Church of America in Washington, D.C., and he was tried for heresy because of his commitment to the German science. Um, so in this ecclesiastical court, I would like to say that, uh, that, that he prevailed and everything was good. But unfortunately, uh, Briggs was actually excommunicated from the Presbyterian Church of America. He was at the time a professor... Uh, he, he was the, the head of the Department of Bible at uh, Union Theological Seminary in New York City, who was uh, had an affiliation with the uh, Presbyterian Church. And as a result of this, uh, Union Seminary immediately uh, ended their association with the Presbyterian Church in favor of holding on to their, uh, their much beloved uh, new chair of uh, the Department of the Bible. And I think this is pretty significant. Um, you've got a seminary. And to this day, this is, so uh, to this day, Union Theological Seminary bills itself as an institution of higher education uh, dedicated to uh, the study of religion, theology, and um, uh, ancient uh, ancient texts and literatures from a uh, from a non-confessional perspective. So as soon as they cut ties with the Presbyterian Church of America, Union set itself up as a, a an independent institution. They were now free to do whatever they wanted. Um, when it came to uh, the text of the Bible, when it came to religion. So, and this, this is really, in my experience, and, and I need to qualify this too, what we're going to be talking about today is my experiences with biblical studies, my experiences with the SBL. I know I've seen uh, others, and I, you know, I encourage people to watch it. Uh, um, uh, Richard, Richard Miller did a, did a talk on myth vision, about all the problems with SBL. Um, so, his experience is different than mine, but I, I think it's important for people to, to note that, uh, you know, it's it, the society itself and the, the discipline itself have worked very hard to, to maintain some sort of, some sort of, I, I don't, uh, separation from confessional ideas. Well, I'm not sure that's true because as Myth Vision says in the comments, obviously the reason you're here, the reason you do this is because you want to sin, right? This is this is the place to come to sin, I was told. <laughs> you, you were told correctly. <laughs> you were. Uh, we also, before we uh, go further, our first ever super chat. Good job. Uh, discovering ancient history with Pat Lowinger wants uh, Dr. Kip to tell us how cool he thinks, I think you, a self-evaluation, how cool you are. Scale of one to a, a ten. A coolness scale of one to ten. Uh, wow. So, uh, 
you, you know, because I'm because I'm the parent of 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 grown teenagers, I'm constantly reminded that I'm barely a two <laughs> on on this scale. I bet Briggs was like an eight, though. I think he does look pretty cool. Uh, so so clearly the 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 history of biblical scholarship is one of the humanities, like you said, one that's uh, it kind of grew into a kind of broke away from the church that what it was kind of associated with and moved into a more historically minded field kind of when it came into it. Yes. Own. Yes. And you can understand too, uh, just to, to point out that this is not a break that even today you can't ever completely break yourself or, 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 you know, they can't just, you know, the SBL cannot just cut themselves off from uh, theology or from theological schools because huge numbers of their own membership are, you know, committed Christian, committed Jewish biblical scholars. Any more than, you know, any society of history can can break themselves away from from you know, people of religious convictions. It's more difficult with something like the SBL because so many people of faith are so interested in the biblical text. I think that's a good segue to one of the things that um, David Fitzgerald mentioned in his book when he did, he did for, for those who haven't seen the previous episode, he kind of did a survey of his own um, of the field and like where people came from. And he basically narrowed himself to uh, degrees that were granting like biblical studies degrees. Uh, and so that struck oh. us as like kind of too narrow. Like that's not the only way to become a biblical scholar. So what does that actually look like? So um, a biblical scholar is anyone who's achieved a terminal degree, like a, like a PhD in a related field. Importantly, you know, I got a, I, I forgot to do this. Um, I've got a, I've got a prop. So if you just hold on for, for one second, I will go and get my prop, okay? We good? Well, yep. While you're doing that, uh, Simone said that uh, she's very excited for this because the professor they were studying under the mission under had heard about uh, the drama around Dr. Kip and felt part of his soul leave his body. So <laughs> definitely something that uh, is is near and dear to all of our hearts. Uh I don't know where I guess he went to go find his prop uh, while we're waiting. Uh, if you would like to see more of what we've got coming up, we've got a, a thousand person stream. Like we said, that should be coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, let us know what you might be interested in us responding to. We were kind of thinking of hitting, maybe we might do a mythicist. We might do a fl something flat earth or something fun and breezy that we could all have a good time with. So let us know in the uh, comments, what you might uh, be interested in us hitting. Okay. I'm back and I went to go get my, uh, this is my, it's upside down, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> not, not, not a, a doctor of holding degrees. This is Doc my, this is my PhD. Can you read? It says doctor of philosophy. Can you read what my PhD is in? It says religion and theology. Religions and theology. Now, can you guess? How many uh, religions, how much religions coursework I did in my PhD? I mean, if it's in the name, it's got to be a lot, right? 
two courses. Can you guess how much theology I did in my degree? Zero. Zero. So here's the problem. Um, there is no, P as far as I know, there might be, but as far as I know, there is no PhD in biblical studies. Degrees tend to be named after departments. Mine was awarded to me by the religions and theology department at the University of Manchester. Uh, at, for example, the University of Toronto, there's a department of Near Eastern Studies, and that's where you do your work on biblical literature. Um, sorry, uh, Bar Ilan University in, um, in Israel and the Catholic University of America, they have departments of Semitics, departments of Semitic languages. So, and Semitic languages are like Hebrew, Aramaic, um, uh, Ugaritic or, or Canaanite, also Egyptian. So one of the problems here is that you can become a biblical scholar by working on uh, ancient Near Eastern literatures at uh, the University of Toronto, or you can become a biblical scholar by doing what I did, which was working on uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Department of Religions and, and, and Theology at the University of Manchester. So right away, this gets confusing, right? Like, there's no set uh, field that is biblical studies. And biblical scholars tend to be specialists in, you know, Hebrew Bible or Jewish literature or in um, archaeology or in, you know, Assyrian texts and those sorts of things. But all these people on in one way, shape, or form, are biblical scholars. Now, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you mentioned that you yourself didn't do any theology coursework to get your degree, and you're a biblical yeah. scholar. Uh, but you also mentioned that a lot of the people who get into this field, naturally, studying the Bible, they are very interested in the Bible, and being it's a book of faith, that, you know, it makes sense that a lot of people in the field would be coming from that direction. So uh, I was wondering if you could give us your perspective from someone who's in the field. Uh, how common are, are strictures put on people working in the field? Like, obviously, they've got their own personal biases. But how often is that like enforced on them? We hear about statement of faith where they're like, they're not allowed to publish outside of that. So, so how common is that? I have no idea. <laughs> and um, like, in my experience, um, not especially. So and the there are there are a couple different sides of this, right? And I will I will stress too that um, you can go to a very conservative school, like um, um, well, let's say for example, uh, Sean McDowell, I believe, teaches at, at Biola University in Los Angeles, right? Where I believe that you know professors have to sign a statement of faith. Uh, these guys, several of them, are members of the Society of Biblical Literature also and they'll present papers about the bible and about the technical critical study of the bible um and by and large i 
in my experience, that's kind of separate from whatever you're doing uh, in your school. So, and I can, I can talk a little bit about that. One thing I wanted to point out uh, with regards to this confusion is, is some of this is, is historic, right? So in the, you know, 1800s and the 1900s, there were seminaries or universities had their own departments of theology. And these are traditionally where study of the ancient Near East, critical study of the Bible, uh, study of archaeology, study of history, ancient Near Eastern history, that's where this started. And it just kind of stayed there. So as a result, you've got a place like um, Harvard Divinity School, which is an institution of critical study of the Bible. It does other things too. It does do theology. And, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the difference there in a, in a, in a little bit. Um, at, uh, at, at a place like uh, uh, Oxford or Cambridge, um, I don't know how familiar you are with the way those universities themselves work, but these very ancient medieval uh, universities like, like universities, uh, Oxford and Cambridge were originally like consortiums of colleges. I think there's, um, I think at Oxford, there is eight individual colleges. There's like a, there's like a Trinity college. Oh no, that's at Cambridge, but there's like a Christ church is a college at Oxford. These were originally like Christian schools. Um, and they just kind of kept the names and many of these departments just continued to be departments of theology, even though they did many other different things. So you can get a, like, like I have a master of arts in biblical studies from a Christian university, which very much is focused on history. I did seminars in historical method. So yeah. Um, so that, that was something that uh, yeah. Fitzgerald mentioned in his book. Like he, he would point out like uh, that there was a, a school that had religious affiliations. And when he yeah. said, oh, this school has an affiliation with the religion, therefore they must be thoroughly riddled with Christian theology and can't like like that was the, the line he drew. But it, it didn't seem like that was actually the case. And there's some confusion here, too. Right. Like there is a here in Canada. Uh, there is a, uh, in Hamilton, Ontario, there's, there's a university, McMaster University, Matthew Thiessen, uh, teaches there. Um, you've probably seen him around on Twitter. Uh, so he teaches at, uh, McMaster University. There's also a McMaster Divinity School, uh, which is much more theological, much more church oriented. So, and people get confused about those two all the time. And that's a situation where like the divinity school is properly much more confessional and the university is doing like just the critical work. It was like that when I, when I went to uh, Trinity Western uh, University, which is where I did my MA, um, is an evangelical Christian school, uh, but there was a seminary on campus. And one of the, I had this terrible experience uh in my uh in my first year of grad school 
because it was small, what they liked to do was when when they would offer a course uh, that looked like it matched a couple different degree programs, they would just cross-list it through all the different schools. They would have one course and everybody would come. So I did a, uh, I had to do a, a, an Old Testament, it was an, an Old Testament or Hebrew Bible seminar. Um, and I showed up and it was me and a few other people from the grad school, the university. And then there were a, a, a bunch of guys and girls from the seminary. And the poor professor uh, wanted to know what degree program everyone was in. And then he had actually put together a, um, like, a, a, a custom syllabus for each degree <laughs> program because the course expectations for the seminarians was so dramatically different than it was for us at the grad school. And it was one of the most annoying classes I ever took because we kept on getting bogged down with what I, you know, with these questions of theology, which I have not have any had any interest in for a long time. I'm, you know, I want to know, I want to know what's going on in terms of the redaction or the editing layers of the book of Ezekiel, right? I don't have any interest in, in contemplating the Holy Spirit involvement in this. That has nothing to do with my program. So I, I, I did like the whole seminar. And at the end, I went and talked to the director of the grad school. And I told him this was a, this was a disaster. I was like, it didn't work because you've got all these different people who are, are, are trying to do different things. And I ended up having to take the course again. I didn't have to pay for it, thankfully, but uh, just, you know, in an effort to, to um, narrow your focus, to make sure that, uh, that uh, you're, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. So I totally understand why people get confused because this kind of thing tends to be common. There's like, an academic side of this question and then there's a theological side of this question and you talk to biblical scholars and when any biblical scholar gets confused with being a theologian kind of rubs you the wrong way because it is not what we do it's not what we're interested in even though i have theology written on my degree i don't do any of that it's just it's just the name of the place where I where I got my uh, my degree. But you wanted to oh, okay. Yeah, real quick, we got a ten dollar super chat from the governor. Uh, I'm halfway through Dr. Kip's real Israelite religion course. You should see how cool he is in 4K. We have the cheap version of Streamyard here, maybe, so I think uh, we're limited to seven uh, seven twenty or whatever. But maybe maybe I'm up to a four four and a half. In yeah. there you go double that score moving on <laughs> so, up. so yeah let's so let's talk about um s statements of faith yeah uh, so timothy's right? question i think is relevant here uh we've been talking about the difference between the two uh and, and i just want to clarify i'm sure you'd agree have it, someone can have faith and still be a perfectly absolutely. good scholar yeah the two are so not you can be a good scientist as well right <laughs> right somebody can sign a statement of faith and work at a at a school demanding one and still be a good scholar. See, because I don't think people really understand how these things work. And from my own experience, I haven't had to do this very often, 
but I had, I, I did work at, uh, at a Christian university where I did have to sign uh, a statement of faith. And the first time I went to sign it, I sat down and I looked at it and it had like eight points. I don't remember what they were. Um, so don't ask, but I, I remember looking at the eight points and I was like, well, this is okay. And this is okay. Not this one, not this one, man, maybe this one, not this one. And at the bottom, it said, check that you agree to everything and sign it or, uh, check those that you disagree with and, uh, include a written statement about your disagreements. So this is what I did. And this is like, I, one of the first courses I'd ever taught. So I, I was new at this. So I, I, uh, I, I typed out, you know, some stuff and I was ready to, to staple it onto the, onto the, the contract and sign it and just send it in. And then I had a thought, I was like, I should run this by my department head. And so I went to go see my department head. I was like, Hey, I'm, signing my contract. I've got this thing. I'm not entirely sure what to do with it. Uh, so I've checked everything off here that, you know, I have issues with, I've attached my, my position paper. And he looks at me, he goes, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, what I was asked. I, yeah. I'm supposed to do this, aren't I? He says, no, he says, just sign it. Just sign it and shut up. <laughs> just... Yes. He said, and this is what he told me. He says, he, it was something like the fewer excuses we give admin to, to dig around into what we're doing here, the better. Uh, because this is a, this is a, a Christian university with, with powerful, wealthy board members who have, you know, uh, kids who, who take, or grandkids who take classes and, you know, when word gets back to them about the uh, how badly all of us in the biblical studies department have sold out to the Enlightenment, <laughs> oh, you know, there was always hell to pay, and it was a headache. So I say that uh, just to to kind of point out that just because you sign a statement of faith, and I did this several times, I didn't believe half of it, and I have no doubt that I was not alone in this. <clears throat> I, I was going to say. At seminaries and Bible colleges all across North America, there are guys who are like holding their nose and signing their name. And then you just teach and then you, you publish. I published. Uh, so the very first article that I ever published after I had signed this statement of faith was all about uh, gender in the hebrew bible oh boy okay <laughs> nobody cared nobody came after me nobody nobody said anything so this idea that your publications are strictly controlled by your institution is nonsense most places are just happy that you're writing something and publishing it because that's good uh, so I think this answers David Wokeland's question. What ramifications would you suffer for breaking your statement of faith? It sounds like none typically. If, I, I'm no. sure, I'm sure so it varies, in, but 
Yes. And I think it depends on how outspoken you might be. And it depends from one school to the next. There are certainly examples. Uh, Mike Lacone is the most famous one who, who said something about, uh, you know, not being certain of the, um, the, the fact that, that zombies, you know, came out of the tombs in Jerusalem and, and wandered around on the, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And as a result, he ended up having to resign his position at his university and got a job like right away he immediately got at another Christian university. <laughs> So, like, it's not, um, I would say uh, it very much depends on where you are, I think. But in my experience, now bear in mind, please, this is my experience. Um, it's a formality that only matters to the administration insofar as what's taking place in the classroom and usually uh, that was controlled by um, the understanding that, you know, we're doing critical biblical studies here. So there's lots of questions that we just have to ask. And there's certain things that we just have to be honest about. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it, uh, I'm fairly sure one of the things on the statement of faith that I signed had to do with the virgin birth. And yet, you know, all the New Testament guys in the department were would would teach that this is this is uh, all literary constructions. There's you know this is not a this is not an historical thing. Let's talk about this as as it pertains to the theology and the Gospel of Luke and this kind of stuff, right? That's interesting so, because like when we were when I was digging into the stats because I'm I'm an analyst that I dug into the numbers. There you go. I was like I was like well if you look at like the percentage of programs it's not even that many that are covered by statements of faith and so I'm like even of those it's not like this this totalitarian beat on your, no, on your head. it's nothing like that. And just to, I mean to uh, so when I I went to the University of Manchester for my PhD um I was uh, I was looking at programs. These are the programs that I was looking at to do my PhD. University of Notre Dame, it's Catholic. I'm not a Catholic. Um, the uh, so it was University of Notre Dame. It was Manchester. Um, the uh, Hebrew Union College is the uh, seminary of uh, of like the Reformed Jewish movement or or whatever organization it is. I'm not Jewish. Uh, New York, or sorry, New York University. Yes. Which is, uh, which is, um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, not a, it's a, it's a secular school. Right. And the, uh, the Jewish theological seminary, which is also in New York, but again, I'm not Jewish. So, you know, just because an institution promotes a worldview or is uh, grounded in a confession, a faith confession of one sort or another, oftentimes that has little bearing on what's going on in classrooms. So, um, and I'll, I'll just say one more thing here. So uh, one of my best friends, uh, is Matthew Philip Munger, who is a professor at a uh, 
a, a place in Norway called uh, 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 MF Vittenskapele School for Theology, Religion, og Samfun, which translates as the MF Norwegian School for Theology, Religion, and Society. So MF Norwegian School of Theology was founded as an evangelical Christian seminary. Matt's an atheist. He is publicly an atheist. And uh, yet, he's he's got a position at this uh, school that was originally founded as a seminary. He says now it's a specialized university for theology, religion, and social science. So... This is this is kind of what it looks like in the world of I I think almost any sort of religious studies. It's not special to Christianity or to Judaism. I suspect this is what it's it looks like studying any religion. So, so uh, David one thing, Oakland, yeah, go ahead. David Oakland put this up here. Um, wouldn't it just undercut your credibility? And it seems like if you're reading somebody else's work, you don't even ask the question, right? You no, just keep on trucking. <laughs> No, it's not like it. It's not like this is something that that everybody uh, talks about um, amongst one another. We read the articles that are published in the journals, and if they're good, we cite them and we learn from them. We go and we 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 buy books and we use these books uh, for texts in our courses. Um, we use them in our research. We don't sit down and go, oh, but this guy who wrote this great book actually is, uh, is, is a professor at, um, at Regent College, which is, you know, down the road for me here. Uh, and they have to sign a statement of faith. So this is probably no good. No, it doesn't work like that. You look at the, you look at the work, right. you look at the scholarship. That's how you decide if it's any good or not. And if it has credibility or not. And you can see through a bunch of this stuff too, like where professional academics, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, where professional scholars of the Bible get together and have our own society. There's, you know, much more conservative evangelical kind of shadow <laughs> societies to this too. You've the evangelical theological society uh, lots of guys who who are members of the Evangelical Theological Society are also members of SBL, um, and when they, it's funny because when they give papers at SBL, usually they're good papers. But then when you go and look at the, you know, the kinds of papers that they read at the Evangelical Theological Society, I'm like, are you like the same guy? <laughs> <laughs> that that actually happens sometimes. There are some creationists who publish in like actual journals sometimes. right and yeah. stuff in actual journals is fine and then you go into the yeah fake journal yeah uh uh yeah so real quick i did want to point out boxer fencer has been describing in the chat that he had a very different experience in scholarship and so i wanted to to just underline this is dr kip's experience but the point that we're making here is not that this is the same for everybody but and, and I'm sure like if you went to Liberty, they're a very conservative school. It might be very different. However, what this says is just because they're at a school that's affiliated with a religion doesn't mean that they're not doing good scholarship. Just because someone signed a statement of faith doesn't mean that they're not doing good scholarship. So like it's not that the, that everyone's experience is like this, but the fact that someone's experience is like this tells you that it can happen. 
and at the and at the big institutions you know uh ubc down the road from me the university of toronto the university of alberta um university of chicago divinity school yale princeton duke um harvard they're not signing statements of faith there they're just right. not yeah and so like yeah yeah uh quick uh super chat here from gnostic informant for ten dollars thank you very much how much greek are seminarians required to learn and do they even look greek look at greek, at sources, greek sources or just hebrew just I, I, it depends on your program and you can do programs at seminaries where you're not required to learn any Greek. I've seen this. Um, I think on average for, for someone doing a, for someone doing a master's of divinity degree, you need to have, uh, I think the standard is two years of, uh, of Greek language. I did a pro my program was a master of arts in, uh, biblical studies at, the grad school that was across the lawn from the the seminary uh and i had to do uh i had i had to do two years of greek and two years of hebrew but then had the option of uh syriac and aramaic um and you know you end up doing plenty of other language training if you move further into your uh, phd but it varies right and in some cases, it's, you know, it's probably not, not, uh, not the same for, for everybody or even needed. Like, you know, at, you can go to a seminary uh, because, because this is something that that's happening now, you know, uh, seminaries will do programs in like music ministry or to be a, 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 a leader worship of the leader. choir or a worship leader yeah. or something like that. The church, why do you need to do a little... Why do you My seminary, when I went there, was the Master of Arts, particularly for chaplaincy, and I wasn't required to do a, a language requirement for that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Dapper Dino just wanted to uh, point out he's in the chat. We have real dinosaur in there. Uh, he wonders what a real seminary is like. One day, uh, Jared went to seminary, so maybe we should do an episode one time with your experience. Doesn't want that. <laughs> what is like. really like in what seminary? Is, uh, I I just remember uh, when I met Jared. He was, you know, very straight laced and, you know, we, we had some discussions back and forth and like within two months of me meeting him, he's like, yeah, all that stuff's bullshit. Awesome. Pretty much how it went. Yeah. So, uh, so we've talked about the statements of faith and what oh. it's like in the field. Yeah. Uh, uh so we should, you, do you want to talk about, should I, should we do the, uh, should I just, just give you a, a sample of, uh, of what the SBL looks like? Sure, we can do, do that. that and then we can okay. move on to, uh, to Tom Thompson's story. Cause I think yeah. it's really relevant. Let's do that. Stuff. Let's do that last. So, um, okay. So, uh, the society of the big biblical literature is the largest, uh, learned society for, for academic critical biblical studies. It's not the only one. I'm also the member of a member of something called the International Organization for the Study of Old Testament, the International Organization of Qumran Studies, uh, the European Association of Biblical Studies. There's, I believe, a European Association of New Testament Studies. Uh, so there's there's all sorts of of uh, professional societies. SBL just happens to be the biggest one, um, and I believe the the well, it's the oldest one in North America for sure. Uh, so 
one of the things that the SBL does, which is great, is they have an, they have an annual meeting every year in the United States. And it takes place uh, the weekend before Thanksgiving. So what always happens is um, everyone uh, gets off for Thanksgiving holidays and they pack up and they go to SBL and then they leave SBL and they go spend Thanksgiving with their family. So, um, of course, when you're in Canada, that doesn't happen because we have Thanksgiving on a totally different day. Um, but that's neither here nor there. They also do an international meeting in Europe. Uh, so it's much smaller. And the reason they did that is because it could be really difficult for European scholars to come every year to the United States for the annual meeting. I used to do it all the time when I was in Norway. And I joked with all my friends in Europe that we were just doing our own shadow conference that met in the middle of the night when everybody was totally jet lagged. Right. But uh, yeah. Anyways, the, uh, the annual meeting is, is the big one. Uh, just to give you an idea for the, the upcoming uh, 2023 annual meeting, which is in San Antonio, Texas, there are 443 sessions scheduled over three days. Uh, this last year, in 2022, it was in uh, Denver. Uh, there were 1,800 participants. Now, that's 1,800 people who either read a paper, sat on a panel, or presided over a session. Uh, but those don't give you an idea of the kind of numbers we're talking about with regards to attendees. I did some looking into this. Uh, one of the biggest ones I can remember being at was in Chicago in 2012. And according to what I saw, there were 5,106 people who had registered for that conference. Um, but they have way more attendees than that. On average, I saw a report that said for the 2017 meeting, which was also in Denver, there were over 10,000 people who were there for this conference. So it's, it's big, like it's, it's, it's pretty big. Um, so it's basically a time for, for biblical scholars to get together, uh, to, to network, to read papers, to cut book deals, to, you know, to, to, to do all the things that, uh, you do in a professional society. So, um, if we can bring up my screen, I'm just going to show you give you a, a sense of uh, what this looks like. So is my screen up yet? Uh, yep, it's up. Okay, so I'm starting with this because this is, as I was doing some of my research for this, I came across this. Uh, so this is actually an advertorial for the 19th meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature and Exegesis, which was uh, scheduled for December 12th, 1889. And I love this. It says, Dear Sir, the meeting in Boston will be held at the Theological School of Boston University. It gives you the address beginning on Thursday and continuing through Friday afternoon. And then it says, the following papers will probably be presented. <laughs> That's funny. So not, not exactly yeah. holding themselves to a strict schedule. <laughs> no. not, not really. So, but this was the whole meeting. And and here we have uh here's the uh like the kinds of things that that they they uh, heard about uh, in 1889 in Boston. Workman's concept, uh, conspectus of the variations between Hebrew and Greek Jeremiah. 
the vocabulary of the Synoptic Gospels. The biblical demonology on a curious passage in Barnabas, an important New Testament manuscript allied to the Codex Sinaiticus. The Ascension of Isaiah. Hey, you guys have heard of that, I bet. A new translation with introduction and brief notes. New Testament terms descriptive of the great change. Uh, Babylonian cosmogonic myths compared with the accounts of creation in Genesis. Um, a review of the Syrian witness to the apocalypse is stated by uh, Tischendorf and uh, uh, Tregellis. And, you know, some notes on Hebrew lexicography. So as you can see, it's even like 130 years ago. These are guys who are just big uh, literature nerds. And this is what the Society of Biblical Literature has always been about. It has come a long way, though, uh, since then. So I, I just pulled up, and this is a random sampling of, uh, of stuff uh, that took place at the uh, the last annual meeting. So here is a session dedicated entirely to the Gospel of Luke. It's an open panel, and you can see some of the some of the the paper titles here: "Embodied Intertextuality and the Healing of the Bent Over Woman" from Luke thirteen ten to seventeen, because this widow keeps bothering me. Luke eighteen five, a decolonial <laughs> feminist reading. Uh, Luke and the Rhetoric of Transition, another look at the story behind Jesus' baptism. So here's another one. This is ancient fiction, an early Christian and Jewish narrative. Sexual violence in the Acts of John, conflations of violence and desire in a portrait of celibacy. Violated visionary on voyeurism, queerness, and violence in Act 6 of Acts of Thomas. I think... Oh, this so these one are in particular. This... Good. No, go ahead. I was just going to say these are clearly papers that uh, I imagine would ruffle some feathers in an evangelical conservative group talking about feminism, Maybe talking about sexual violence, queering, yeah. queering polymorphic Jesus yeah. in the Acts of John. <laughs> that might that might do it too, right? Yeah. Right. So uh, there's another one. There's LGBTI queer hermeneutics. There's a whole session dedicated to this right here we have one on mysticism esotericism and gnosticism in antiquity um this the theme of this one is innovative approaches to mysticism esotericism and gnosticism harmonizing the secrets of the gnostics clement of alexandria's redemptive approach to apocryphal texts esoterizing christians and gnostic remixes in the third century so so I think it's clear from the sampling that we're not like this isn't a group of people who are slavishly dedicated to the story you'll hear in Sunday school. These are scholars that are working through scholarship. Here's one. Point. You have a whole session on economics in the biblical world, right? The last paper here by Wolf, Wolfgang Zwinkel uh, is about military spending in Israel and Judah in the context of economy. So it's it's just this is this is what it's like all the way throughout. There was a couple uh, I wanted to point out. Um, so uh, where was I? I was going to pull up this one. These got 
mixed up by oh these ones are fun i love these sessions the bible and popular culture uh the cup and conscience the use of uh first corinthians 11 27 to 32 mm. in netflix's midnight mass um killing adam's eve biblical women in bbc's america's killing eve so um there's another one i wanted to to pull up that's that's from uh there's another uh session on gender sexuality in the bible feminist hermeneutics in the bible women in the biblical world there's a whole uh there's a whole panel section Ooh, on fetish. fetish and fetishization in the study of religion so here's one on bible and film that i really like the the theme of this one was monsters and masculinities the real monster, biblical reception in the shape of water and venom, queering power in Psalm 22 and through the power of the dog, missing Jonathan, the curious case of the missing prince in modern dramatizations of the David narrative. So there, that's, so that's a sampling. That's, uh, and I'm, I'm telling you, that's what we do. Like, that's what all of these SBL sessions are like. So uh, the Shanty uh, says that she'd love to listen to the panel on Venom. I agree. That sounds like that. That's probably one of my favorites in that list. Uh, so but I do want to. On that point, though, can I just say this wasn't a paper I presented at SBL, but it could have been. Uh, one of my favorite articles that I ever read, and if you can get your hands on it, I encourage you to read it, is called uh, Zombies in America and a Qumran, uh, AMC's The Walking Dead and Apocalyptic Redux, where mm. I examine similar th themes and ideas, uh, apocalyptic themes and ideas that are presented in The Walking Dead and in the Dead Sea School but this is That's interesting it's just fun this is yeah. what this yeah. is what we do right so so uh vishanti wants us to get to the lighter fluid portion of the uh, stream when we talk about <laughs> mythicism so uh i don't i don't want to well, keep her waiting uh now just as a reminder what we've been talking about up to now is the kind of the, the story that mythicists paint about biblical scholarship versus what it's really like because it's clear that, especially David Fitzgerald, but there's been a lot of time and effort undercutting the field because they have to, right? Because the field is yes. at a consensus and they need to destroy it in order to make room for themselves. Uh, but we are told that the kind of the, the point, the payoff for this is that they couldn't possibly accept Jesus as myth because uh, it's too important theologically. And these scholars are unwilling or unable or both to to make a conclusion, to come to the conclusion that Jesus is a myth, even if the evidence says so. And uh, we, there was a story that David Fitzgerald actually mentions in his book, but I thought was uh, would be really important for us to talk about today. And that's the story of Tom Thompson, uh, who yeah. was an individual in biblical scholarship back in the 70s, who had a kind of uh, a story that might sound similar, uh, kind of superficially, uh, <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah. So do you, do you want me to tell the story then? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Tom All right. Thompson. Who is this okay. guy and why is he relevant to uh carrier in particular? So uh, he's been, he keep, you, you will hear this over and over again in uh, discussions from mythicists about how 
uh, Tom Thompson radically proposed this idea back in the 1970s that uh, the patriarchs uh, were all mythical figures and they weren't actual they weren't based in any history and as a result of this he was a pariah he was like thrown out of the academy he wandered the desert for many years and and was unable to to find work until finally he landed in uh the happy land of the university of copenhagen uh where he he had a professorship and and i believe he retired an emeritus there yeah. so there's some truth to this story, but this is this is something that, that I think um, people don't really have a clear sense or understanding of what actually happened. So um, Tom Thompson uh, is an American scholar. He is a, he was a Catholic. I don't believe he he ended up as a Catholic, but when he started, he was a Catholic. Uh, Bible scholar. He did uh, uh, graduate work at the University of Dubuque, I believe it was. And then he went to the University of Tübingen, which is this uh, very important center of theological, biblical, um, ancient Near Eastern study uh, in Tübingen, Germany. And uh, the way the German system works, which is a little different from almost anywhere else, is that every uh, every German uh, department of theology uh, has two sides to it. There's a Protestant school and a Catholic school, and you have to declare yourself in one or the other. And being a Catholic, uh, Tom Thompson declared himself in the Catholic school. So he started work on this dissertation on the historicity of the patriarchs. Uh, he submitted it in 1973 to the catholic faculty of tubingen uh at the same time the i believe he was the head of the department at the uh, of the the uh or, or the head of the the catholic faculty uh was a man by the name of joseph uh ratzinger um you guys familiar with this guy nope joseph ratzinger uh goes by a another name uh and that name is pope benedict the 16th oh wow i did not know that <laughs> so this powerful uh rising cardinal within the roman catholic church was one of tom thompson's dissertation examiners Cardinal Palpatine and Esfashanti. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, um, and as a result, uh, the, uh, the dissertation was rejected. Uh, now there was, uh, Tom has, has said that at some point he tried to transfer out of the Catholic faculty into the Protestant faculty and things pro I suspect things probably would have gotten a little bit better for him there having, you know, not having to defend his dissertation before Pope Benedict. The <laughs> of course, uh, everybody understands this is before he was the Pope. Before right? The Pope. right, right, so, right. But yeah, but, I, I, you're definitely kind of the deck is stacked against you. If you're trying to defend <laughs> your dissertation of why this central figure in the Bible is not real uh, to the future. And the guy, Benedict. I mean, even though he wasn't the Pope yet, he was already, 
and he was already a Catholic. He was already a Vatican insider. Like he was, he was, he was a a Catholic Church power broker. Uh, you know, among all the Catholic power Church power brokers. So right away, uh, yeah, the deck was was definitely stacked against poor Tom Thompson. So it it was rejected uh, in 1973, but he managed to get it published in 1974 by uh, De Gruyter, which is one of the two very large uh, German academic publishers. The other one is Vandenhoek and Ruprecht. I actually think they got bought by De Gruyter recently. But uh, anyways, uh, so he, even though this was a rejected dissertation, he got it published right away. <laughs> like, right away. And to give you an idea, um, so when I I wrote my dissertation, um, it was accepted with minor revisions. It was like spelling, and I had some I had some accent problems over the Greek that I had to fix, uh, and that was it. And then uh, it took me, uh, I think, a, a good year after that to get it published, just to get it up to you know publication standard because there was a number of things that I had to uh, refocus and shift and rework for uh, my dissertation to, to 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 be published. Thompson got his published his you know rejected dissertation published right away. So um, now I think it's important for people to understand what his project was. And I'll read a little bit uh, from it for you. I have it here. The, the name of the book when it was published is The Historicity of the Patriarchal Narrative. So he says this in the introduction. Central to the argument for the historicity of the patriarchal narratives is the understanding that the historical value of Genesis 11:26 and following is substantially supported by what we know of the movements of early West Semites in Mesopotamia, of the Ur III and Old Babylonian periods in Egypt, of the First Intermediate, and in Palestine during the archaeological period, variously known as Intermediate, early bronze to middle bronze or middle bronze one. Largely because of the long established character of this interpretation, there has been a tendency not only to see the patriarchal narratives in the light of this historical background, indeed as historical records themselves, but also to interpret the historical and archeological information in the light of the biblical narratives with a resulting harmonization that makes the hypothesis increasingly difficult to analyze. For such analysis demands not only an investigation of whether the biblical traditions really do suppose the type of background that historical studies and archaeology offer, but it demands a new investigation of the historical and archaeological sources as well. Because of this, it seems necessary to insist on a methodology of writing the history of the ancient Near East, which observes a careful distinction between the types of materials at hand and which allows historical conclusions to be drawn only after each type of material has been independently examined. Thus, archaeological material should not be dated or evaluated on the basis of written texts, which are independent of these materials. So also, 
written documents should not be interpreted on the basis of archaeological hypotheses. So right away, I want to point out, I think this is important, what, what Thompson was doing was he was confronting a fairly long-established school known as the Biblical Archaeology School. This was uh, the great William Foxwell Albright and um, uh, uh, other guys like Martin Note or, um, sorry, not Martin Note, sorry. Uh, the, the big ones certainly were William Foxwell Albright, uh, George Ernst Wright, and um, John Bright. I don't know why all their last names are like, <laughs> are like that. <laughs> but these were the big guys. And they basically, for decades up to this point, basically from the post, after the Second World War, up until the 70s, the standard model within biblical studies, which was was deter like grounded in the work of these guys, was, well, we've got these patriarchal narratives, and they seem to reflect some things that look really similar to what we're mining out of uh, uh, archaeological digs from the early to the middle Bronze Age, which is, uh, shoot, it's like from, I th I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's from like, like uh, 2000 BC up to like 17 or 1800. It's longer than that. It's like 2500 BC up to 1800. BC. So it's this, this period of time that we call the early to middle bronze age. They were basically saying, we see these similarities between texts here and the archeological finds here. So we're just going to basically say we can use the archeological finds to interpret what's going on in these texts. And by the same token, we can use the text then to interpret the archeological discoveries. Thomas Thompson's entire project <laughs> was to say that's bullshit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and his, his book is very much a book about archeology. span And this is really important because one of the things, one, one of the, the key problems here, I, I hope people can appreciate one of the key problems of doing this with this kind of literature is at this point in time, including the, the Biblical Archaeology School, everyone is agreed that the biblical texts uh, date to, at the very earliest, like 900. But the patriarchal period was like 800, 900, 1,000 years before that. So what Thompson's basically doing is you've got this massive chasm of time between these texts and between, you know, the archaeology of the period. And that, I mean, that's very conservative dating. I mean, the, the, the scholarly consensus right now is that we're really skeptical, about just about everything prior to the, the, the seventh, eighth, maybe centuries. So like, this is his whole project is you can't, you can't combine these two. So he, what he did, uh, and it's an excellent book. I mean, it is a biblical studies classic, which, you know, helps to explain why, even though the dissertation was rejected, De Gruyter went and, yep, <laughs> we're publishing that right away uh, because it's super important. So um, 
it's it's a phenomenal book of predominantly archaeology. Like Thompson spends two thirds or three quarters of the book basically going through all the archaeological reports of the uh, early to middle Bronze Age period digs and and basically showing how problematic the interpretations of those are relative to the texts. That's his whole project. So, so I think something that's interesting that struck me was, like you said, uh, he Thompson publishes his work. And even though mm -hmm. he does get some flack where he is and he gets some flack in America, it is picked yeah. up and published broadly. Oh, yeah. And so, so it's not like his, his and even in the people who are disagreeing with him, they're still feeling the need to engage with it. And they're citing yeah. it and they're talking about it. So there's there's a little bit more to the story here. OK, so um, and, and let's talk. Uh, let's talk about the, the difficulty that Thompson had. So, yes, his Ph.D. dissertation was rejected. He ended up leaving Tübingen. Uh, but then and that was in 1973. Right. Uh, he went back to the United States. Uh, he worked as an adjunct at UNC Chapel Hill at the time. So he was, you know, teaching. Um, he was actually invited to finish his PhD at Temple University in 1976. Uh, in 1984, he was given a guest professorship at the Ecole Biblique, which is the French School of Archaeology in East Jerusalem. He was a recipient of the National um, uh, Endowment for the Humanities in 1988. He was an, an adjunct at Lawrence University in 1988. Uh, so it's not like... Like he he struck he didn't get tenure anywhere he couldn't get a permanent position, um, and I'm going to talk about why I think that is. But it didn't. It's not because his work was in any way problematic. It's not because people were uh, thought he. It's not like people because people were absolutely scandalized. But what he by what he did. In fact, and this is very important. That this is something that you never hear from mythicists. Okay. That book came out in 1974. In 1975, the great Canadian biblical scholar, John Van Cedars, who was at the time the head of the Department of, uh, of Near Eastern Studies at the University of Toronto, which is the largest university in my home and native land of Canada. In 1975, the very next year, he published Abraham, in history and tradition, in which he basically independently uh, arrived at the same conclusions that Thompson had in his work. So the field was ready for this. And biblical scholars, by and large, were supportive. How supportive, you might ask? Shall we... Uh, shall, how, yeah. how do we know... How do we know right at the outset whether or not a book is well-received? Well, uh, people who read about it or read it often post reviews on it, and that be, might be one way. Yeah, That's a good way to look, isn't it? So I, I, I managed to dig up a couple of reviews of Thompson's book right after it was published. So uh, this one uh, comes from the Religious Studies Review, and it was published in 1977. So this is a few years after. And this is a long review of both Thompson's and Van Cedar's books together. Uh, the reviewer, Robert, Robert W. Neff, says, 
the book provides a valuable exposition of the second millennium sources and introduces a new stage in the debate about the historicity of the biblical traditions, the thoroughness and care with which Thompson argues his case, avoiding the easy linkage between biblical texts and external sources, make his study one which cannot be overlooked in any future investigation of the patriarchs. It's a solid review, right? So here's another one from Dennis Pardee, uh, who I believe was at the University of Chicago at the time. Uh, and he wrote this in the Journal of Near Eastern Studies. Notice also that uh, these his book is being reviewed often, and it's being reviewed by the right periodicals. By right? people like publishing are, in the field. Yeah, so this is the Journal of Near Eastern Studies. He begins his review like this. Are they historical? No. Speaking of the patriarchs. Nor should we expect them to be. This book is a new salvo in what, be, what might be called the Albright Oct controversy. Thompson belongs squarely in the latter camp and does not leave even as much leeway for historicity as Noth. That's Martin Noth. Uh, moreover, he destroys once for all one of the supports of the Albright reconstruction, the myth of the form critic working away in splendid literary isolation independent of archaeological data. Thompson states the, um, this emphatically and drives the point home by the very nature of his book. It is not a form-critical study of the biblical text, but an analysis of the archaeological and textual data, which are usually cited as proving the historicity of the patriarchal narratives. His conclusion, not only has archaeology not proven a single event from the patriarchal traditions, to be historical, it has not shown any of the traditions to be likely. Another pretty mm. good review, but I gotta say, uh, oh, uh, yeah, I gotta say though, th this one is my favorite. And this is the review that was published in the Journal of Biblical Literature. This is the largest, most widely circulated and read uh, academic journal in biblical studies. This is the review that was written by uh, 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 Matatihu Tsevat. He's an Israeli scholar. And uh, this is what he has to say about Thompson's book. Of the post-World War II publications in the area of pre-Israelite history known to the reviewer, this is by far the most important one. It sets the standards of scientific argumentation at a level uncommon in this field and indeed in much of Old Testament scholarship. The purpose of the book is to review the central arguments currently held by biblical scholars in favor of the historicity of the patriarchs in Genesis. In my opinion, Thompson's review is tantamount to a complete refutation of these arguments. The chief value in his study, however, lies not in this result, but in its paradigmatic method, its rigor, and its clarity. Finally, in addition to paradigm and conclusion, the reader is given a bonus of inestimable value, a stupendous amount of archaeological, historical, linguistic, and legal material pertaining to the Near East and especially Palestine of the second millennium. 
Later on, he goes on to say, the examinations of individual propositions represent a serious challenge to the picture of prehistory of Israel. And in the course of the examination, the author again transcends his analysis of details and raises questions of principle. So I think I told you, I, I said this to you guys before the show started, but if I ever got a book review like that, Mic drop. Yeah, like, like you, you just don't ever write anything else. Like, you know, <laughs> and where do you, where do you go from there? Nothing else that Thompson ever published had that kind of gravitas. Like it was, it was a tour de force when he published it, and it was hailed by the field as a tour de force. So why, why did he struggle to to get? tenure why did he struggle in his career any ideas any thoughts pissed off I, the wrong guy <laughs> yeah i don't know maybe it's just hard to work with <laughs> Card, cardinal palpatine yeah mm. i think that's it i think if thompson had written his dissertation at let's say um the uh, uh, Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, which is not very far away from Tübingen, I think he would have been fine. I don't think anything would have happened to him. I think if he had published, if he had written his dissertation in a Protestant faculty, yeah. he would have been fine. The problem here was not that his work was challenging the establishment. It was. It was challenging the establishment. And everyone who read it went, yes, let's go, right? The problem was that he threatened <laughs> he threatened the future pope. Yeah. And if so... you come after the king, you best not miss. <laughs> so, right? so this is often, so this started uh, or kind of was breaking the idea that some prominent figures in the history of the Bible were not historical figures and so naturally the parallel is drawn well it happened once before look at tom thompson mm -hmm. he was dragged through the coals obviously we've debunked that he not that he didn't have any problems but that it wasn't the same that he was like completely dismissed out of hand so what are some of the ways in which the story of jesus mythicism doesn't line up like what are the salient differences because at first blush it might sound like these guys are saying it's myth these guys are saying it's myth same thing right I think they're significant. First and foremost, I want to, one thing I pointed out there, that, there are two things I pointed out that are really important. Uh, Thompson's book was uh, a book about the relationship between archaeology and text. Mm -hmm. And as a result, he spent tons of time in the material culture, which is something that mythicism can't do because it utterly fails it 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 doesn't work archaeologically which is why you never hear any of them talking about it okay first and foremost i think the other important difference here too is that and this one is really significant and it's so on the nose it blows me away that that people don't talk about this when thompson is talking about uh, overturning the paradigm and when Thompson is talking about how skeptical we should be about the historicity of these figures 
he's talking about the gap between the texts and the time. How big is that gap? Several thousand years, probably. Oh, like a thousand years, yeah. It's at Quite least thin. hundreds. At least hundreds of years, maybe over a thousand years. What's the gap <laughs> between the texts uh, and the, uh, the 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 historical milieu for Jesus? If... Maybe if you push it really hard, three to five years. Well, so the the actual text, the first writing we get is Paul, right? And that's fifties. Yeah. So like twenty years, maybe if you're going maybe, writing to event, maybe maybe that much, maybe fifty. Yeah. Do you see a pro? Do you see the difference here? Like, yeah. I, I don't even feel like I I have to point out how how you know how much this doesn't add up. Now the other thing I wanted to to make mention is John Van Cedars, a tenured scholar at a university who the very next year wrote a book where he basically uh, said the exact same thing as Thompson. So it's been um, 10 years since the publication, uh, since Richard, R Richard Carrier published on the historicity of Jesus. I think something like that. Is it, is it something like that? So 2016, I, 20, did he say, is it 2016? Let's say it's That's 2016. A, yeah. All right. So for, for this to be equivalent, it would be like, uh, say, um, uh, Dale Martin at Yale or Margaret Mitchell at, uh, the university of Chicago to have published a book on Jesus mythicism by 2017-2018. I think that hasn't happened and it doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. No no signs of it. And I think something that's uh, a critical difference that I think is one of the most persuasive to me it's like how this story is not analogous is that people in the field were talking and discussing this book immediately. People everyone immediately. who read it Everyone who read it knew how important it was, could understand, and even if they didn't agree with it, were engaging with it in the scholarship. Whereas if you contrast that with Carrier's book, somehow, and I don't know how it is, every single scholar who's ever read it doesn't understand it. It's crazy. Well, that's because they're all tainted by the field. Yeah, so, yeah. that's right. Hopeless right. hopeless Christian uh, pundits or whatever. De Gruyter was falling all over themselves to publish a rejected dissertation. Like right. it, yeah, yeah, it, it, uh, the, the, these are not the same. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, something you wrote in the notes, uh, that really drives it home. The problems that Thomas had or Thompson had were institutionally, the, the, he was, but his peers, the, the people in the field, and this is something that occurred in a lot of the stories that Fitzgerald brought up. The actual scholars in the field were very supportive of these people. They sometimes oh, yes. got flack from elsewhere, but the the experts were the very ones fighting for them. If you but in, with Jesus mythicism, there's almost no people, very very few. You could count them on probably one hand and with fingers left over, of people who are actual bona fide experts who even consider it like plausible to any degree. You know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I think so. One of the things we've highlighted is just how complicated the field is, right? So when, yes. when mythicists say 
make a claim about the fact that you know biblical fields are study biblical study field is tainted with Christian theology or you know even Jewish theology, so therefore they don't want to go against it. That seems plausible on the front. But when you actually look into it, and even somebody as yourself who's in the field and says how complex it is to even describe what the field is, it's really hard to sort of parse out what exactly is going on. But the mythicists point this up like it's a slam dunk. So look, Thompson had issues. He challenged the field and he got dragged to the mud. We've shown that both of those things actually aren't the case. Um, so I don't even know why they would use that as an example. Um, first well, of all, because because they don't know. I well, mean, none of none of them have read the reviews of yeah. Thompson's book, right? None of them have actually uh, gone and looked. None of them know about Van Cedars. None of them have gone and, and and done the work to see how their work made an immediate impact in the publications that followed on the heels of that. Because, yeah, I mean, when you look at the citations that um, uh, Thompson has for that book, it's, it's, it's in the many, many hundreds, right? I, I'm, to be fair, this was, this was 50 years ago. But still, like, it's not like people are saying lots of things about Thompson's work now because it's, you know. It, well, yeah, it's 50 years ago. Yeah. So <laughs> most of those citations all happened in the 70s, right? And we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of citations. Also, just because Carrier's work hasn't been engaged with doesn't mean that he's not right. Yeah, or, so I mean, <laughs> that is something I did want to say. I'm not. Okay. We are not trying to make an argument from authority in that because scholars have disagreed, therefore Carrier's wrong. But what we are saying is if we're laymen and we're trying to get a feel, like who's going to know if Carrier's right? I'm not yeah. going to know. I don't have the the education to know. If Carrier check says, the footnotes, Jordan. Just look at the if, footnotes. If Carrier says that the Greek says this and then does a mile long footnote, how am I going to check it? That's why we rely on on experts. Right. And so if we as as skeptics see, well, this this was my experience with Carrier when I first read his book. It was the first book I'd read on New Testament at all. And I was like, wow, this seems super plausible. It seems like very well evidenced, great footnotes and everything. I wonder I wonder why no expert finds this in compelling. And then I went and go ask the experts because they're the ones who are going to know, right? So that is, I think, the step that a lot of mythicists don't do. And uh, as Potential Theism points out, I, I think to some extent, uh, mythicists know, like the, the ones who make this their living, know that their audience isn't going to check. They're not going to check. They're not going to dig in those yeah. footnotes, you know? I think you're probably right. It also it also helps Carrier that um, so Thompson uh, was always as as good as his work was in uh, in that book. He was always a controversial figure. So um, and I think he kind of leaned into that, especially uh, later in life. Thompson, uh, along with uh, 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 Niels P. Lemke and Philip R. Davies um became basically became the um the the ones who who laid the groundwork for, for the groundwork for what's called in my field the the minimalist school uh which is the the school of thought that virtually all of the hebrew bible was written uh during the hellenistic period so like the time of alexander the great right 
uh it's a it's a a, a a minority position although i will say it has provided an enormously helpful corrective to the field and i think um as a result lots of scholars for a little while now have been taking much more seriously uh you know the the um the post babylonian background of uh of the hebrew bible text there's a a book recently written it's it's the the best book i've read this year uh is by jonathan adler uh called the origin of judaism where he basically explores this question uh and does it properly by you know exploring the relationship between texts and archaeology um he asked the question how far back uh can we trace judaism and by judaism i mean uh those you know the the idea that the torah the the torah of moses was normative and based on the torah of moses we uh we follow these dietary uh restrictions and we observe these festivals and it's an incredibly interesting book because you can't get much farther back than like the second century bce uh before before all of a sudden you see that you know it's you know this all falls apart but that's that's a totally different story guys i'm sorry about that um <laughs> So we're getting uh, close to the two hour mark. Um, so oh, yeah. one last thing that I wanted to kind of put a bow in this is like, so we talked about how biblical studies actually are contrasted with how mythicists say they are. And we've talked about the sort of uh, aspirational hero of mythicists and how it doesn't really apply to their case. So what should mythicists be doing differently if they actually want to do good scholarship and to be taken seriously and to to like change the field what would they be doing that they're not doing so i've been spending some time thinking about this question and it's it's really difficult so i so i um i posted i posted something on twitter today i don't know how many people caught it but i uh uh and maybe this maybe i can help to sort of explain uh my thinking on this by by looking at this uh this this thing i i, I put up on twitter if i can find it can you uh can you turn on my my screen and then i will find this uh god damn it sorry am i allowed to say that on, i'm probably not, well so. you're uh, it's late in the stream um, so the way that YouTube doesn't care if you curse as long as you don't do oh, it like okay. the first five minutes. <laughs> in the first five minutes, where am I here? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm 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 newish to Twitter. Oh, here we go. This is the easiest way to find it. So I posted this. Um, I said, uh, I don't know if you can see the thread here. Yep. I'm a, I'm a, a Dead Sea Scrolls guy, right? Uh, so I do I do all my work in the field of early Judaism in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, the founder of the, the Qumran community is someone who's called the teacher of righteousness. He's never named. He's just called that. Um, based on what the texts say about him, it seems like he was probably a priest uh, who ran afoul the Jerusalem uh, priesthood, maybe sometime in the second century. From their perspective, it's, it's within the recollectable past. 
So the teacher of righteousness ran afoul of the Jerusalem priesthood and uh, ended up gathering a group of followers and they went out into the desert and, and, you know, founded this, this community. And this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls came from. So, um, but I said this because I was thinking through some of this. I'm working on a script about the Qumran Pesharim for the next installment in my video series. And I had an idea. Maybe I will write a book one day titled on the historicity of the teacher of righteousness. So I didn't have enough room, so I had to continue. It will be about how there was a Jewish sectarian group who followed this anonymous unnamed figure from many decades in the past that they call Morei HaTzedek or the teacher of righteousness, whom they seem only to know through their reading of scripture and who was immortalized through his teachings and persecution. So um, I, th I think one of the problems, and I, I, I said that, it's, it's a tongue-in-cheek thing. Um, there's probably only a handful of people who would kind of get what I'm, I'm, I'm pick up what I'm putting down there, because you kind of have to know a little bit about what's going on in the scrolls to understand this. Uh, but I think this is illustrative of, of what I think needs to happen. Um, so the, uh, in the first place, I think, um, and I told, I, I was in, uh, I was in a stream last week, um, on, uh, deep drinks yeah. podcast. Yeah. And, uh, I can't reach that phone that has an alarm that's ringing. I hope you guys can't hear that. Oh, um, we can definitely hear it. Yes. Oh God. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> I can't reach it. Damn. You're good. You're uh, maybe good. maybe it'll stop at yeah. some point. So um, I'll just speak up. <laughs> uh, so I, I Richard Carrier was in the chat on this stream, and I said this to him, and this is what I I, I think he's not properly equipped to conduct the investigation that he sought to in the first place. I don't think he has a requisite background in early Judaism or in ancient religion. Uh, he doesn't read the texts in their original languages. Um, I, you know, he, he's, he wasn't trained as a biblical scholar because this is where you learn how to do these things as well as history. Um, I think as a history generalist or even a history of antiquity is this driving everybody crazy it is, it is deafening <laughs> oh my god okay well now i just Hold ended on. yeah <laughs> sorry i didn't mean to uh, yeah sorry well kip is like is, is... <laughs> and that was like his, his his driving the point home too right yeah. yeah oh man that is that is terrible sorry uh so while we're waiting uh <laughs> For a kid to take care of that hashtag professionals that's right only only the highest quality streams here on reason to doubt uh i think that uh <laughs> vishanti really uh nailed the point the difference between tom thompson and uh what mythicists are doing tom thomas thompson did the work he published the results whereas mythicism is often based on well you can't prove it didn't happen you know Oh God. Oh God. Okay. I got you. You're in now. Good. Okay. All right. I, I, I had muted myself. So, so did, did like, no. Okay. <laughs> did anybody so, get so... any of that? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> why don't we why, start? So let's. We were talking about uh, Carrier and how he's not equipped to do the investigation yeah. that he's doing. I don't think he's, and this isn't his fault, right? Like this is just the way it is. In the same way that I, I don't think I'm equipped to write a book, uh, uh about uh, about the Emperor Augustus, or I'm not equipped to to write a book about Josephus, right? Right. Because that's not I'm that's not my training. Um, to do this kind of an investigation, I think by far the most important thing, it needs to be undertaken by somebody who knows the literature, who knows uh, the culture and the background and is, is well-versed in the field. Um, because I mean, one of the things that, that I have noticed in, in my reading of Richard Carrier's work is that he's got a very, rudimentary grasp of just the the shape of early judaism mm -hmm. right and this is re this is required stuff like you need to know what's going on and that's uh, critical order... to his argument yes right it, well it's critical to any argument about you know the the origins of christianity and i think that's the other thing i would say is the the proper way to approach this question and to i think to richard's credit i think he tried to do this because he recognized the this but the proper way to approach this question is not did jesus exist the proper way to approach this question is where did christianity come from what are the origins of christianity these texts that we have what's behind them right and when you start there i think there's i think there's room for the question how much of this is based on on you know actual events uh who was this person jesus if he existed at all um does does christianity fit within you know our understanding of early judaism because that's i mean from my perspective this is this is the way scholarship works right so there's all these we there's all these overlapping uh areas like my work overlaps with stuff in the hebrew bible and in the new testament right so when when i when i write things it's got to make sense for new testament scholars and for hebrew bible scholars depending on what i'm working on Right. Um, and what's what makes an excellent uh, scholarly argument and excellent, robust scholarship it, within biblical studies is one, you know, is is a work that intersects properly at all the right places. And, you know, the, the reason that uh, well, from my perspective, the reason that no specialists in early Judaism find Carrier's work useful is because it doesn't. It doesn't it doesn't say anything meaningful at all or useful at all about early Judaism. It just doesn't. And, and that makes it unusable. I think that's important um, to point out. And I think Bart Ehrman says something similar to that 
but it could be viewed as gatekeeping, right? Like, oh, you don't have the relevant degree. You don't have the relevant expertise. But the that point that you just made is that even that he doesn't have those relevant expertise, the people who do don't take what he said seriously and aren't even taking it and running it with it because they could if they wanted to. So um, maybe I'll uh, – a good way to look at this is is um, uh, Robin Faith Walsh's book. Um, what's it called? It's she published it uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, let's see if I can get the find find the title here. No, it's not there. Um, yeah, but but she the origins she wrote, of early Christianity is that the one? That's the one. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. she wrote a very very good book uh, that has had an immediate impact on the field um, by exploring this question. Uh, how much do we take for granted that the Gospels uh, are products of communities as opposed to learned individuals? And then what does that do to our understanding of the shape of early Christianity? So that's the right way to go about doing this, right? She, she, she found this interesting question that's based in the text. I think that's really important because this is what we have is the text. Um, and then if, if you're, if you're doing something with regards to history as well, you absolutely have to grapple with the material culture, with the archeology. span That's the other thing. If you're going to write a, write about the, uh, the, the historicity of Jesus or the origins of Christianity, you need to start, you need to also factor into consideration the archeology. span And I mean, that's, that's just something that Carrier never does. Um, and you know, I, I don't. I'm not surprised about that either because it's, uh, you know, archaeology is not easy stuff to, to digest and, and you really need a lot of experience with reports to understand how to make use of them too. Right. So, um, and call it gatekeeping or not like call it whatever you want. Um, this is just how, this is just how the work is done, right? It it requires experts to do uh, to do the in depth uh, analysis to make it robust, to make it serious. And I am not the right person <laughs> to write this book either, because I don't feel like I have enough requisite experience to do that kind of a project. I think that's one of the things that is uh surprising to me about what carrier did is just how you know how broad like what he what he tried to do is not something that can be done by one man or per, like one person <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is a this requires the input of many relevant experts uh working together well, as Potential Theism pointed out, I don't know if you saw Carrier's blog recently, he posted a a, uh, a brief thing on physics and the laws of thermodynamics and how, like, like kind of hitting that. So clearly, uh, I, he's a polymath, you know, and has no problem with it. Uh, having read it, and I am not a physicist by any stretch, I just know a little bit of physics, the second law stuff was okay. He should have stopped there. That's, that's all I have to say on that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, 
I think that's pretty much everything we wanted to cover. Let's wrap it up real quick. And then uh, we got, I think, one audience question uh, for okay. you. Um, so the claim being made by Mythicist, David, David Fitzgerald is the one specifically uh, that... Yeah that was we were kind of framing this around but it's he's not the only one is that biblical scholarship is thoroughly dominated by christian thought and therefore you can't trust anything the field says of course they think jesus is real because they have to because that they're, they're required to and that's just not the case it's not the case uh that uh, because even, even regardless sure, of the religious persuasion of scholars that doesn't mean they're not doing good scholarship you know and you know some something I didn't spend much time talking about either is that like you know uh, there are n like New Testament or or early Christian uh, um, departments at like Jewish uh, seminaries right at the the Hebrew University has or at least for a long time had a professor of New Testament he's a Jewish guy uh, do you think they care? Whether right there was an historical jesus like why aren't they writing Th this, this was book? a point that i brought up to uh godless engineer when i went on his show uh and we were talking about josephus and i was like josephus like you've got this this picture in your mind of what biblical scholars are like but okay let's talk about josephus scholars they are not biblical these are not mostly christians they're mostly jewish and they yes. why would they give a shit whether jesus exists or not and yet in their field they also whenever they overlap come to the exact same conclusions isn't that weird you know like what it, it, you would think if it was just the product How? of bias yeah if it was just bias if it was just this corruption then you'd you'd expect to see a, a stark difference right but you don't yeah so yes that exactly right um there was one other thing i did i didn't get to that i wanted to say in terms of, i i do feel maybe somewhat uh qualified to talk about some of these things because i am also a person who has who has suffered the wrath of you know challenging challenging institutions um if you don't know i i mentioned it i was i was one of the team that that you know cracked open the the story of the dead sea scrolls forgeries uh the way my involvement in that uh came by way of my work on the Skyen collection, which is in Norway, but also because I was doing work for the Museum of the Bible, the notorious Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. I, you know, and working as, you know, I don't think I was, I was an outspoken atheist at that point, but certainly I, you know, I didn't have to sign anything and I didn't have to uh, agree to do anything, but because of my association with the Museum of the Bible, for a long time, I was persona non grata among uh, many of my own peers in the field just because they're so opposed, rightly opposed to, um, you know, the mission and, and the purpose behind uh, the Museum of the Bible. So I, and I, I, I was super stupid. I kind of shot myself in the foot where on the one hand, um, I, you know, I, I ran afoul 
the the mainstream institution uh, because of my affiliation with the Museum of the Bible. But then on the other side, I could never go and work at like uh, a Christian school either. Because, I mean, uh, you know, I'm most of them wouldn't hire me. Either. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> you, you, you got uh, so I do, I do understand. Um, I understand some of this. And I also have, I also have to say during that whole time, I had tons of support from peers and from colleagues and from mentors within the field. So I think uh, that I, I think we thoroughly established the point we were trying to, to make <laughs> uh, the dissimilarities between mythicism and Thompson's work and the reasons why mythicism just isn't comparable. Uh, so we've got a couple super chats that I want to hit uh, right. 99 from potential theism. Thanking us for the good discussion. Thanks for your super chat. Uh, first, according to YouTube, and I actually have no idea how reliable YouTube is in these. According to YouTube, this is the first uh, super chat that Tim O'Neill has ever given anybody. So eight dollars. No uh, way. <laughs> Thanks for that. Wow. Uh, but that's Australian money too, oh, by the way. Yeah, so. there yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's worth like so it's, lots, it's upside down, I right? Think, right? Is that yeah? yeah. yeah. We have to get it so, turned over. Uh, I, I have to. So Tim O'Neill actually actually uh, became one of my 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 patrons just so he could go and uh, and watch the uh, the the videos that are still behind the paywall. So yeah. I hugely and appreciate it. They are excellent. So strongly, if I highly highly recommend if you're interested in those videos. Uh, go ch- check out uh, Dr. Kit's Patreon because you- you'll be getting your money's worth for sure. So he's also, I, I have to put, he's also pointed out here that I stole his line of argument on how to frame the issue. Uh, and you're right, Tim. I mean, I, I think you said it very, very well when you were on this very show. Um, it's, it's one of those things though. I think when you're, when you've spent enough time working within the field with the texts, uh, with biblical scholars, you, you, I don't know. It seems like a natural starting point to me, but yeah. Sorry, I just responded. There's uh, some moderation going on in the chat. Uh, oh, so cool. we got a uh, $10 super chat from Thomas Lakeman. I had to miss most of this. What I heard is amazing. Well, good news for you. Oh. You can go watch it later and you can watch it at 1.5 speed as God intended. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I can't watch anything at 1.5 speed. Uh, now, now if I watch anything at normal speed, it it sounds like people are like drunk because they're sounding they're so slow. Yeah. Um, Five dollars from from uh, Vishanti mythicism right now feels like edgy former Christians trying their final dunk. Oh yeah, well your main character's not even real, <laughs> owned, and that I get the same vibes. Like it, there, it seems like a lot of atheists were dogmatic Christians and have abandon the Christianity, but not abandon the dogmatism. And so it's just another way for them to, I don't know, dunk on Christians. Uh, sure. Okay, one 
one more coming in here at the end uh, from David of Oakland. Very interesting show. Thanks, Dr. Kip. And we uh, concur with that. Uh, one question that came early on in the chat, but might be interesting, from uh, Timothy Bagley. He was wondering, since you were uh, had some history in Norway, uh, if you would describe the Norwegian School of Theology's view on American biblical scholarship. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So uh, the MF Norwegian School of Theology is kind of a funny place. Um, so I, I, to be clear, so when I was in Norway, I was not at MF. Uh, I was at a public university called the University of Achter, um, which was also an interesting place. But, uh, uh, so, um, I, I don't know, maybe I could, I, the best way to answer this question is, is to, to talk more generally about like Norwegian uh academics and their opinion of american was it american biblical scholarship what was it um, let me pull it let me uh pull it american back yeah american biblical scholarship okay um i mean very much there's so there is a uh within like norway within lots of continental europe uh there's oftentimes a lot of uh um what's the word I'm looking for confusion uh, with regards to the sorts of controversies that end up becoming um, features within American biblical scholarship, like something, you know, the thing that happened with Lycona, everybody was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> because nothing like nothing like that would ever happen in Norway. Uh, in fact, uh so my 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 uh, position in Norway was three years uh, by design, because if you're in a position for four years, they have to give you a permanent job. Um, <laughs> and then once you get a permanent position at a Norwegian university, it's almost impossible for them to fire you. So like I've my 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 good friend or Usness has told me, he says, I think I think you might have to like rob a bank or you know <laughs> and like a good like, bank seriously. too yeah <laughs> like uh yeah so um i all i can say is that uh the european view of of american biblical scholarship i think is more surprised by how tribal uh some of it can be um but uh you know it's a big, it, it is a big tent. So lots of us work together. Um, I've worked with evangelical scholars before, some very, very conservative evangelical scholars before who do excellent, incredible work. So it just, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It's just not that deep. Uh, I think this question might be for you, and I think this will be the last one. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, so Blake asks if you have any uh, thoughts on the Herculaneum papyri. I have never oh, heard of this. Wow. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, and he wants to know if you think it might have any information on the historical Jesus. So I I don't think there's... Well, oh, I mean, that would be amazing. I don't think there's anything that... I, I don't think we'll ever find anything that has historical information about Jesus that... that 
I, you know, I would count as as really uh, useful historical information just by virtue of the fact that you know you're not going to get any kind of documentation out of Galilee, uh, mm -hmm. first century Galilee, and, and you're certainly not going to get any uh, Aramaic uh, documentation. If you get some some Greek stuff, it, it would be surprising. It just it's it's not the right kind of thing, but so um what what this person is getting at and i don't know a lot about these particular uh documents but i do know about um uh about carbonized documents there was uh there was a a scroll um that uh that was discovered decades ago in a um in like a a, a Genitza, which is a, a place where where uh, Jews will retire their sacred texts because you can't destroy them. So you have to kind of ceremonially bury them. Um, but there was, it might not have been a Genitza. It might just have been a, a storage container, but it, at a, at a dig at a synagogue, they found a, I believe it was a metal box too, that contained uh, a scroll uh, that was uh, carbonized. And basically what this means is that it got, it got so hot, it basically turned into carbon. It didn't burn, right? Because it was protected inside the box. I expect that's that's the same sort of thing that happened with the Vesuvius documents. Um, and it took them decades and decades before they could figure out a way to... And there's actually a really interesting documentary about this that you can watch on Nova. Uh, they found a way to uh, basically map uh map the the scroll using a um like a ct scanner and then they uh they they unrolled it on a on a computer screen you know it's pretty wild pretty cool. now that you say that i have heard of those because that was the part that that i i, I don't remember yep. anything else about it but i remember reading that and think that, that was like super cool so and when even was if Vesuvius, what 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 year did Vesuvius erupt? It was sixty something, wasn't it? It's was like uh, you know what Google 68? knows. Yeah, Google knows. But even if 70, there was something in there for Jesus, it would oh, still okay. be more more of the same of what we already have, right? So probably, I think probably, yeah. right? Yeah. Like it, uh, yeah. And and I can't imagine why there'd be anything at Vesuvius about. I mean, there, there there was a church in Rome, so like Christianity had spread that far, but like yeah. why, why specifically? Yeah, but that's where Jesus how, retired. How, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how prevalent? How widespread? I mean, I think this is, and this is where a lot of the the very good work in New Testament New, New Testament scholarship is taking place um, is is kind of reevaluating, uh, you know, long held preconceptions about the the shape and the extent of the early christian community and you know you know how these these groups interacted with one another so i mean there's a lot of very interesting things that are that are 79 yes thank you pat i will stay in my own lane uh, <laughs> so i should i should stop talking about that <laughs> Oh, wow. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, before we go, uh, Kip, would you uh, tell everybody what you got coming up on your channel, what they should be looking for, forward to? Yeah. So the last, uh, the final 
of my three videos that I made about uh, Richard Carrier's handling of early Judaism will be published on my YouTube channel on uh, Monday next week. So uh, expect another uh, massive blog post to follow, <laughs> to follow and <laughs> I'll probably lose a whole bunch of subscribers again. And uh, um, so, yes, uh, keep your, keep your eyes open for that. And that's it. I'm, I am done with that. Uh, I just finished today. I just finished uh, the script for the next installment of uh, in my my ongoing long form series on the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is called Dead Sea Scrolls Unapologetically. There's three videos so far. Uh, this will be uh, video number four, and um, it's all about uh, prophecy and uh the so-called pesha ring at Qumran. i think it's pretty good but uh it it uh I, I just finished the script for that so it'll probably take me it'll probably be up on my patreon i hope by the end of august or the beginning of september and then uh and then yeah it'll it'll be published a few weeks after that so. Well, Dr. Kip was kind enough to give uh, Jared and I a preview of the carrier videos. And I, that third one is spicy. Like that one, <laughs> it's legit. So if you haven't subscribed already, you you don't want to miss this one. Definitely be there for when it drops on Monday. Uh, thanks again, Dr. Kip. Really appreciate you coming. Uh, we have a bit of a tradition here, as you know. Oh, you yes. All the way to the end you get a bias or a fallacy or whatever we're going to do today. So today's bias of the day is paradelia. And this is okay. the human tendency to see patterns where perhaps there aren't any because we are pattern seeking animals. And so like if you Charles Augustus Briggs in a cloud. Yeah, exactly. Or perhaps Charles <laughs> Augustus Briggs in toast or Charles Augustus Briggs somewhere else. I don't know. <laughs> We're looking for him everywhere, by the way. Right, so. yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, humans are great at detecting agency and patterns where there aren't any, but this extends beyond just the visual. We always, it's, it's, you can see studies where people like, they give them random data and they're like, find the pattern, and the brain can find a pattern. It'll find one, even if there is none there. And so, uh, as with most biases, it's just something you have to keep in mind uh, that just because you see a pattern, remember, if there's a random distribution, there's going to be clusters and a truly random distribution. There's going to be clusters of data. That's how randomness works, right? Uh, so just because you see a pattern, just because you see some association, don't rush. Don't assume that it's actually there. Uh, take some time, do some math, uh, or just get an analyst to do it. So anyway, that's our show. Thanks again for making it all the way to the end. Uh, do subscribe to Dr. Kip. And uh, if you don't mind subscribing to us, give us a like, let us know what you thought. Till next time, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.